the hymn that we just sang, Depth of Mercy, is the 11th hymn in our series, 15 Hymns Every Christian Should Know. Like several of our other hymns that we have sung, it was written by Charles Wesley. It was originally written with 13 verses. Maybe be glad that we didn't have all 13 verses in our hymnal this morning. We might have sung all 13. And it was originally entitled, After a Relapse into Sin. Now, you can see why that's such a catchy title. After a Relapse into Sin. Um, but, you know, I actually think it's very, it's very appropriate. I, I mean, the, the title of the hymn, Depth of Mercy, is great, really, but, but this title really captures the sense in which Charles Wesley was writing this hymn. After a relapse into sin, I'm sure that for each one of us, we could, we could reflect, we could think about, we could Take a few moments of meditation. It wouldn't take very long for us to see ourselves in this position that Charles Wesley wrote about after a relapse into sin. I don't think it takes a whole lot of imagination for us to put ourselves there and realize that this is something we have experienced. And this hymn, the reason that I included it, in our list, 15 hymns every Christian should know, and I don't know how many of you knew that hymn prior to us singing it this morning. Nobody. Wow. I thought I thought Mary might know it. Because I knew Mary was raised Methodist, and Charles Wesley was a great Methodist hymn writer, so I thought for sure she would know all 9,000 of Charles Wesley's hymns. <laughs> <I'm> just... <clears throat> but nobody knew this hymn. So why on earth would I include a hymn that none of us have ever heard? It's been in our hymnal. We, you know, why would I include a hymn that none of us know? Well, for a very important reason. Because I think this hymn serves as a very powerful, very touching reminder of the struggle that each one of us has with sin. You know, even as believers, even as Christians, we continue to live with a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. And I think it's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we would cry out with the words, depth of mercy can there be? Mercy still reserved for me? Can my God His wrath forbear me? The chief of sinners spare. Can you relate to that? Expression this morning? Do you ever feel like the chief of sinners? Do you ever feel like it's impossible for God to have any mercy left for you? Surely he's reached his limit, right? Do you ever feel that way? Surely God must have gotten to the limit with me. He's just, you know, I mean... The bank account is empty. I'm overdrawn. I don't know whatever you know an analogy you want to use. I'm out of gas. 
Whatever it is, I don't know. It's all used up. Surely the mercy of God must have run out. And so we'd ask that question, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Is it possible that God could forbear His wrath on me? This, these are the questions. This was the, the struggle that Charles Wesley faced. And he wrote this hymn. And we might, we might cry out with these words, and frankly, the, the weight of this might overwhelm us. The guilt that we feel. But of the 13 verses, the four that are included in our hymnal I really like, because the last verse reminds us of a very important truth. Even as we ask this question, then we conclude or we respond in faith by saying this, Therefore, me, my Savior stands, holding forth His wounded hands. God is love. I know. I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Every one of us ought to find ourselves in this hymn. That's why this is one of the 15 hymns that every Christian ought to know. What do you do? What do you do when you realize that you have once again fallen into sin? When in spite of your good intentions and your best efforts, you have followed your sinful and selfish desires instead of serving and obeying your Savior? What do you do then? That's the question that this hymn addresses. And I think it's a question we ought to return to on a regular basis. What do we do when we find ourselves caught up in sin? When we find that our sinful nature has once again reared its ugly head and taken control? Maybe that's not the right way to look at it. The way the Scriptures would indicate is that we've handed over control. But the reality is it's all the same difference to us. What do we do when we find that our sinful flesh is in control and we are living and we've chosen to do something that is wrong once again? Do we wallow in pity? We need to turn to this question of this hymn. You know, Wesley didn't take this hymn directly from Scripture. It's not, uh, you know, it's not taken from any specific verses of Scripture that I know of. But it has biblical support and precedent in a number of passages. And this morning I'd like to look at one uh, in particular. One passage, and it's Psalm 32. So if you would turn to Psalm chapter 32 this morning, or Psalm 32 this morning, I don't anticipate this will take us too long, but I want to go through all 11 verses of this psalm because this psalm really, I think, teaches us the same principles that Charles Wesley was communicating in this hymn. Psalm 32, and I'd like to start right off the bat here by reading the first two verses. And then we'll continue on. 
Let's see, Nikita, this one might be a little bit challenging, but I think you can get these words. Would you mind reading this for us, the first verse? Iniquity. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. These two verses open up the psalm for us. They introduce the psalm and they really spell out the principle. The key principle of this psalm and the principle of this, the hymn, Depth of Mercy, and the principle that I would like to share with you this morning. And so if I could say it in a sentence, if I could say it in a sentence, here's how I would say it. Boys and girls, pay attention because this is on your notes. If I could say it in a sentence, here's what it would be. God shows mercy to all who humbly and honestly confess their sin. This is the truth in a nutshell that we need to get. God shows mercy to all who humbly and honestly confess their sin. There's a, a blessedness. That's the, the word that the psalmist uses here to introduce the first verse. Blessed is he. There's a blessedness, a, a happiness, if you will, that belongs to the one whose transgression has been forgiven, whose sin has been covered. It's, it's interesting here. It's, it's not what he's saying, what the psalmist is saying. He's not saying that God has, has hidden our sin or that our sin is being ignored, that it's being covered up. You know, a cover-up is not generally a good thing, right? We're seeing a lot of cover-ups going on right now in our, in our government on all levels. Uh, everybody is doing this, okay? That's not a, a good thing, covering up. Something that's wrong. Well, how is it possible then here? He says that blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Well, we understand God doesn't cover our sin. He doesn't hide our sin or ignore our sin. He takes it away. That's what the word forgiven means. It literally means to, to lift up. Like, like lifting up a burden off of something. So he's lifting it up and he's hiding it or covering it or concealing it from view so that it can never be seen again. That's the picture that's used here in the first verse. That the Lord has, has taken away the sin and has hidden it from view. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to be the one whose sin has been lifted away and has been Placed out of view, concealed from view, never to be seen again. Is that good? You can answer, it's okay. I mean, is it good to be that? Would you say that the person who experiences that is blessed, is happy? I hope so. Psalmist says that blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But you know, this doesn't mean that the believer whose sins have been forgiven and have been covered will never sin again, right? I mean, we know that this is not the case. We know it by experience. The Christian sins. 
But, now this is the big one. The Christian sins, but his sin is not charged to his account. He sins. He does. We know that. We know that because we do it. But Scripture tells us that for the believer, his sin is not charged to his account. In the book of Romans, Paul quotes uh, this, these two verses here. Romans chapter 4. But he goes even further than what, than what the psalmist says here. Because he says, Paul tells us in Romans 4, that God positively imputes Christ's righteousness. Notice here in verse 2, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And that truly is a blessing. For the believer who sins, God doesn't credit or charge the sin to his account. But in Romans 4, Paul quotes this, and then he says, not only does God not charge the sin to our account, God charges the righteousness of Christ to our account. He credits that onto our account. That is what the scripture says happens to the believer. God positively imputes Christ's righteousness to the one who believes. And there's an interesting description here at the end of verse 2 that the psalmist gives us of the believer. One whose sin has been forgiven and is covered. One whose sin is no longer charged to his account. He, here's how he describes him. The end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does this tell us about a believer, a Christian, a person who has been forgiven? What does it tell us about him? He's been taught to deal honestly with himself and with God concerning his sin. There's no attempt to cover it up. There's no attempt to excuse sin or to justify sin. There's an honest and transparent recognition of who he truly is. You see, the believer, the person whose sins have been forgiven, the person whose sins have been covered, who is credited with the righteousness of Christ rather than being charged with his own sin, that person stands before the Lord honestly. Honestly assessing who He is and what He has done. Recognizing that He's a guilty sinner. Recognizing that apart from the mercy of God, He has no standing whatsoever. He's guilty. He is rightly condemned. By the way, all of this David says as just an introduction to the psalm. This is the reality that Scripture teaches us. When someone believes in Christ, this is what happens. It's, it's about open, honest assessment of who we are. Recognizing that we are but sinners. Condemned to die, deserving of that condemnation, 
casting ourselves at the mercy of God. And then the transaction takes place. Our sins are forgiven. They're removed. They're covered. The righteousness of Christ is credited to our account and our sins are no longer charged. Let's just go home. I like that. Let's just do it. I really, I do. I like that. Let's, if I go any further, I, I just, let's stop right there. I like that a lot. Okay. It's good. This is reality. Understand, I, you know, I, I don't know how else to say this, but really, I, I think that so many times we live our lives, we say that we believe things, but we don't really act on that. It doesn't really affect us in a real meaningful way. I mean, we say, yeah, yeah, I believe the Bible, I believe in Jesus, I believe they forgive sins. Okay, okay, okay. But do you really get the weight of what this is? In two verses, in two verses, David has completely demolished every religion on earth. You understand that? In two verses, he's completely demolished every religion that says you can be right with God if you just work hard at it. You can somehow pay for your sin. You can overcome it. You're not really a bad person. You're just you know, caught up in bad circumstances. Whatever other lies, whatever other ideas or philosophies, other, David has destroyed them all. The man who is blessed is the one who is at the mercy of God. We cry out, depth of mercy. Can there still be mercy reserved for me? The answer, yes, there is. There is mercy still for you and for me. It, it never runs out. It's an endless supply. There's mercy. And see, all of this introduction and David goes on here in this psalm to share with us his own personal example. Now, Charles Wesley wrote the hymn and titled it After a Relapse into Sin. David could have entitled this psalm the same way. After a Relapse into Sin. Most biblical scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 32 the same time that he wrote Psalm 51 after he had committed adultery and murder. And you think, relapse into sin? Yeah, I guess so. David, the man after God's own heart, the leader of God's people, committed adultery and murder. And what does he do? He cries out to the Lord for forgiveness. He rejoices. Blessed is the man, David says. The Lord doesn't charge my sin to my account. I'm credited with his righteousness. And so he goes on here, beginning in verse 3, to share with us his own example. And this really gets to the heart of what I want to talk about this morning. David's own example here is is shown to us. This is what he says. Michael, would you read this verse for us? Groaning. 
night. Vitality. Drought. Chloe, would you read the next one, please? Acknowledged. In these verses, David here, again, sharing with us his own personal example. Okay. The first point here of the psalm that I want you to understand, and, and boys and girls, you're going to write this one down, is the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. I mean, how seriously do we need to be forgiven? Is this really a serious matter? Well, how does David describe it? He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. I could say something about that. I don't think I will. Now I will anyways. I might be, I mean, aside from the kids, I'm one of the younger people in this room. I understand that. Okay. Do your bones grow old? Nancy, you feel like your bones grow old some days? <laughs> okay. I mean, that's a, you know... A natural thing that occurs over time. We get tired. We get weak. We, we lose the strength and vitality that we once had. But that's not what David is talking about. He's not talking about the natural progression here of aging. He's saying all of a sudden, my bones grew old. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. We're just approaching that drought of summertime here, aren't we? We had our rainy season, now we're moving into that drier time. David says, I, I feel like, like all that I have, all of the energy and vitality is all dried up. This is the need for forgiveness. Here, David here is describing the weight of sin, the incredible burden that it bears down on us. The weight and power of sin is so great. It's so terrible that we can, if we can feel its effects even in our body. Charles Spurgeon described the weight of guilt and sin this way. What a killing thing is sin, he says. It is a pestilent disease, a fire in the bones. While we smother our sin, it rages within. And like a gathering wound, swells horribly and torments terribly. See, if we hide it, if we fail to confess it, we try to cover it up or excuse it away, our sin grows inside of us like, like a cancer, sapping our strength and turning our joy into bitterness. That's what David is describing here. As I read these words, it reminds me of a novel I read, I read a number of years ago. You may have read it as well, Crime and Punishment. 
the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. Maybe you haven't read it, I don't know. No? It's a classic novel. But in the book, there's a man, the key character of the book, his name is Raskolnikov. And he commits murder. And he escapes unseen and unsuspected of the crime. But in the days that follow, he's tormented by the depravity of what he's done. He's so tormented that eventually, at the end of the book, he confesses his crime to the police. In one conversation, after having done this deed and while still hiding it in his heart and no one else knowing about it, in fact, in the ensuing days, someone else is suspected of the crime that he committed. But while this is going on, he has a conversation. And he says this about a young man who would commit murder. If he has a conscience, he will suffer for his mistake. That will be punishment as well as the prison. And he's talking, of course, speaking from experience himself, about what that crime did to him and how he how he suffered with the weight of the sin of that crime that he committed. And he tried to justify it in his own mind. But the weight of it, the, the crushing weight of his sin was so much that it almost destroyed him. You see, we can't commit sin and think that we'll escape its consequences, even if we don't get caught. You can't. Sin carries consequences in itself. David describes it here. The, the growing old in his bones. Vitality turning to the summer drought. There's a weakness. There's a, a drying up. There's a bitterness there that David experienced firsthand. We need forgiveness. Because when we sin, it is very powerful in its effect on us. David in verse 5 describes how we receive the forgiveness of sin, right? By acknowledging our sin to God and not hiding it. David says here, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He understood the only way for us to receive forgiveness of our sins is to expose them to God, not cover them up. To agree with God about who we are and what we have done. That's what the word confess means. To agree or to say the same thing. When we expose our sins to God, we agree with God about what we have done and who we are. Then He will forgive the iniquity and the guilt of our sin. But there's more to it than just recognizing our need for forgiveness. We do have a need for forgiveness. But there's something else in verse 6 that I want you to look at. Let's read verses 6 and 7 together, all of us together out loud. Ready? Verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. 
Did you know that there's a time for forgiveness? There's a time for forgiveness. This is the second point in your notes, boys and girls. There's a time for to seek forgiveness. I already quoted Charles Spurgeon earlier. He said about this that there's a time for mercy, and that time is between when the sin is committed and the day of judgment. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Scripture warns us in several places to turn to the Lord today. Not to harden our hearts. I especially like the way that David says it in Psalm 95. Verses 7 and 8, he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. When? Today. Right now, this is the time, he says. Don't harden your hearts. There is a time to seek forgiveness, and that time is now. We have this opportunity today. We may not see tomorrow. We understand what Scripture teaches. James talks about it. says that our life is like a vapor. It's like a puff of your breath on a cold winter day. You breathe it out. You can see the vapor for a moment, and then it's gone. We may not live to see tomorrow. So what does that mean? It means we need to turn to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness while we still can. Today. Right now. This is the time. David says here in verse 6 that the godly ones, everyone who is godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. It doesn't mean that only the godly ones can be forgiven. David's not saying that, that the godly ones will turn to you and the ungodly ones won't. That's not what he's saying. We understand It's actually the exact opposite that's true. Only those who recognize that they are ungodly, who own their own sin before the Lord, without hiding it, without thinking that we're good enough, they're the only ones who can be forgiven. It's only when we we realize we're not godly. David says the godly... Everyone who is godly shall pray to you. But it's not because they're godly that they pray to you. Because they pray to you that they are godly. Because we understand that's that's how it works. We recognize who we really are. I think that's something we need to go back to again and again. Remember who we are. As Christians, we're not perfect. We're not even good. Not really. We're not. The minute someone tells you they think they're a good person, look out. Because we're not. Within us, within our hearts, if we're honest before the Lord, there isn't any good. There's evil. There's sin. There's deceit. There's wickedness. There's a love for self and a love for the flesh 
that wants to be pleased no matter what the cost. And it's only when we recognize that and we admit it that we can be forgiven. So we don't sit here as Christians and think that somehow we're the only godly people around. We're the only good people around. No. We're not at all. We're forgiven. It's a very different thing. He says here that the godly one prays to you in a time when you may be found. Then he goes on to describe what is surely coming, a day of judgment. He describes it as a flood sweeping over the land, flood waters that come, but they don't come near that one. The one who has cried out to the Lord, the one who has sought forgiveness and mercy. Because he's confessed his sin before the Lord, he's received mercy, he will be preserved and delivered from the judgment. That's what David is talking about here in verse 6. In verse 7, the Lord is my hiding place, he says. You preserve me from trouble. Peter describes essentially the same truth in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows. He knows how to deliver the godly from temptation and reserve the unjust for the day of judgment. The godly are those who have been forgiven. Those who have recognize their need for forgiveness, recognize the time for forgiveness and have turned to the Lord while there was time. There's something else here that we learn. I call it the wisdom of forgiveness. The wisdom of forgiveness. Have you ever seen the, uh, the Navy's Blue Angels or the Air Force Thunderbirds? Anybody seen that? Something to watch, isn't it? Pretty incredible. I've had an opportunity to see them both in person. Just phenomenal, fascinating to watch. The the precision of their performance is just unreal. The timing and the the the, the formations that they that they take. You know, in several of the stunts, the only thing that keeps them from a fiery collision and certain death is their skillful flying. And the, the sensitive response of the airplane's controls. Could you imagine what would happen if the pilot moves the controls and the plane fails to respond while he's in the midst of one of these maneuvers? Disaster, right? Disaster. The only thing that, that makes this work is that when the pilot moves, the plane moves. Almost Instinctively, I imagine they, they, they practice this so much and they, they're so uh, experienced with flying these jets that, that the jets almost move with a mind of their own. That the pilot thinks about where he wants to go and the plane goes there because it's so, it's almost habit, the force of habit that he can make these maneuvers. 
Because I imagine if you or I were to try to do this, we would, we would end up in a fireball somewhere. Not a good place. But I think that there's a lot to say in these next two verses in Psalm 32 that's very similar to that arrangement. The pilot maneuvers the plane with just the slightest motions of his hand. And the plane responds instantly, doing exactly what the pilot wants it to do. Look at what, look at what David says here in verses 8 and 9. He says, I will instruct you, for this is the Lord speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. There's a wisdom here of forgiveness. A wisdom of forgiveness that we ought to learn. This is a plea. A plea for us to learn from David's suffering and David's forgiveness. Can we learn the lesson from someone else? Can we learn the lesson from someone else? That's that's an important question. We don't have to endure the same grief and pain that David did when he covered his sin. But truth be told, probably all of us have experienced it at some time or another. The weight of sin that we tried to hide. We should be, I think, especially sensitive to the power of sin to rob us of our strength and our joy. Here in verse 8, we have a promise from God to teach us, to instruct us, to, to watch over us. That's what he means here when he says, I will guide you with my eye. I'm going to be watching over you. That's what he's saying. Keeping watch over you. God is always watching over us. Watching over us so he can direct us into obedience. And if God is always watching over us, then that means that any attempt to cover our sin and hide it is foolishness. Because certainly God has already seen it. God already knows what we have done. He knows who we are. Why try to hide something God already knows? Parents, have your kids ever done that to you? Tried to hide something from you that you already knew? Thinking that somehow they could cover it up and you might not guess, even though you already knew? Foolish. My children try to do that to me. My students used to try to do that to me when I was a teacher. Like they even got to the point where I told my students in my classroom, I would step out of the classroom to go make a photocopy or take a phone call or something. And they would post a sentry by the door so they could all do whatever they wanted and the sentry would warn them when I was coming back. And I could always hear the sentry, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, get back. You know, I could hear him saying that. And I remember walking back into my classroom one day after they did that and saying, guys, you know what? Um, if you had just gotten out of your desks and done whatever you are going to do and I'd walked in on you, I wouldn't be nearly as disappointed in you as I am right now. 
Because not only did you disobey and do what you know you shouldn't do, you insulted me. By acting like I was so stupid, I wouldn't catch you doing that, or somehow I didn't know what you were doing. You insulted me, so you double, this is doubly offensive here. So why do we do the same thing to God? Why do we insult God by trying to cover something up from Him when He already knows? And we know He knows because He's God. David says here it's like being a, like a horse or a mule. No offense to you horse people out there. It's like David said, it's like being an animal who cannot discipline itself and has to be it has to be controlled with a bit and a bridle. We've got to put a bit in the horse's mouth so we can make it do what we want because if not, it's not going to listen. It won't listen to reason. David says, don't be like that. Learn the lesson. Learn the wisdom of forgiveness. God wants to direct us and guide us into obedience. Rather than trying to cover up our sin, let's confess it to Him. Let's seek seek His mercy. It's interesting how that whole thing works. You know, a rider puts a bridle on a horse with a bit in its mouth. And the horse moves away from the pressure of the bit in its mouth. And so by applying pressure, the rider can get the horse to move in the way that he wants it to go. Well, it's a pretty good analogy. God can apply pressure and bring pressure to bear on us if necessary to get us to go in the direction that he wants us to go. But how much better is it if we learn that we can't hide anything from God? And we learn to simply confess our sin to Him and to obey. So He doesn't have to bring pressure to bear, to force us to go in a direction we don't want to go. I like the way that Derek Kidner put it. He's, he's with the Lord now, but... He wrote about this psalm. He says, if forgiveness is good, fellowship is better. If we have experienced God's heavy hand, we should appreciate and seek his gentler touch. Right? God's promised. Listen, if you're a Christian, God's promised to direct you, to instruct you, to teach you, to guide you. The question is, is he going to use that gentler hand? Or is it going to be forced to bring pressure to bear? Because we act like an animal. And we refuse to do what He wants us to do. We refuse to turn away from our sin and seek His mercy. You know, when preachers focus on the topic of sin, our reaction is probably negative most of the time. Maybe even defensive a little bit. We don't usually consider a a message about sin to be a, an opportunity for rejoicing. At least I don't think we do. But that's exactly how David brings this psalm to a close. I'd like to look at these last two verses here. He encourages others to join with him in singing praise to the Lord, shouting for joy with all those who've been forgiven. Look at the last two verses. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, 
mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Rejoice. This is the final admonition for us. Rejoice. It would be incorrect. It would be misguided for us to focus on our sin and the consequences of our sin without turning our eyes to the Savior. Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins with his own blood on the cross of Calvary. He died so we could receive his righteousness on our account instead of the guilt of our sin. As we come to a close this morning, I have three questions I want to ask you. I want you to think about these. Very important questions for us to consider. The first one is this. Have you ever confessed your sin to the Lord, admitting that you are guilty and rightfully condemned and asking for His mercy and forgiveness? Have you ever done that? This is the crucial question of our life. It's the one question that matters above all others. Have you ever come to Christ and said, you know what? I get it. I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve anything from you. I need to be forgiven. I know it. And now is the time for me to be forgiven because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we ask Him for mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever done that? If not, can I challenge you today is the day. Now is the time for you to repent of your sin and cry out for mercy. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've already done that. You already have been forgiven of your sins and and you've already received forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. Well, then there's another question I'd like for you to consider. Are you learning the wisdom of obedience and yielding to the Lord's guidance in His Word? That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand here. There's wisdom in that. God will direct us and guide us through His Word and His Spirit. But we have to learn to follow. That's what it means for us as believers to continue to repent of sin, to continue to seek the mercy and forgiveness of God. Because we learn through that to be obedient to Him. And the third question is this. We'll close with this one. Are you rejoicing? Are you rejoicing today in the Lord for the mercy that He has extended to you, a guilty sinner? He's shown you mercy. He continues to show mercy depth of mercy? Can there be mercy still reserved for me? The answer is yes. There is. Let's rejoice in that this morning and celebrate the mercy that we have been given. Let's pray.